The adventure is poorly defined and confusing, but J.J. Abrams doesn't expect us to be smart. That's from Lindsay Romaine of Nerdist. A strong review criticizing the new film. That's right, Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker. Just 55% from the critics on Rotten Tomatoes, but all of you out there giving it 86%. So I'll give you my review of that film. In addition to that, Just Mercy, new film from Michael B. Jordan and Jamie Foxx, as well as a really good documentary. Mike Wallace is here about the famous 60 Minutes Newsman. Thank you so much to everybody for checking us out here as we wrap up 2019. Because it's the end of the year, we are going to do our favorite movies of the year, myself and Joe's list as well. I hope all of you had a wonderful Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. Happy holidays to everybody out there. And of course, thank you so much for your support of the podcast. It means the world to me. Uh, and I can't thank you enough for everybody out there who is subscribing right now. And of course, putting comments on Apple Podcasts. Uh, Doc Lou Iowa chiming once again on our list of war movies. Private Ryan and Hacksaw Ridge. Why not on your honorable mention list? Listen, I like Saving Private Ryan, but I'm not as over the moon as others about it. Um, I remember that year I actually was preferred Thin Red Line because I liked the uh, the feel of that movie and the mood of Terrence Malick's film and the different narrators. And I love Nick Nolte, Elias Coteas. I mean, it was just different vibe for me. Hacksaw Ridge, I'm not crazy, but again, I think it was good action sequences from Mel Gibson. But I don't think it's a great war movie. And I was incensed uh, when Gibson was actually nominated for Best Director. I had him on my and Marty, as Chris says, he was snubbed for... Um, for silence, I believe that year. Dave Mac 28, great podcast. I loved it when it was still produced by ESPN Pod. Still well worth a subscribe. So I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Keep it coming here. Uh, and we'll keep the, the love rolling. Um, I also just got a tweet from a guy who said, did you, did you review two popes? I did. It wasn't on the listing. Uh, I don't think here as I'm looking at Cinephile on Apple Podcasts, but I believe it was last podcast or two podcasts ago. Two Popes is a great film. It'll be popping up on my top 10 of the year. Like I said, which is coming up. Total Recall, really fun segment. What year are we doing, Joe, for Total Recall? Oscars 2015, movies of 2014. Mm. Okay, good. So a, a more recent vintage there. So we'll dive into that as well. Uh, I love seeing the fact two people are just tweeting as well, seeing a lot more of the movies which are out now. Of course, I'm uh, so lucky to have all these screeners, which is how I'm able to see so many of these films. But now people are saying, oh, I just saw Uncut Gems. And I know what you mean about the mix-up with ESPN TNT and all that kind of stuff. And a film that I don't think many people saw, and clearly I did not see, was Richard Jewell which I saw this blurb here as I was just firing through my uh, Hollywood reporters. Thanks, as always, to Kathy Leogrand, who hooked me up to the subscription. I, I was on uh, away for the holidays with my family, so I come on just, just pounding through four Hollywood reporters. Richard Jewell's $4.7 million debut becomes the director's worst box office bow since Bronco Billy opened to $3.7 million nearly 40 years ago. It's pretty shocking. Clint Eastwood, say what you will. I mean, the guy's almost 90. He still cranks out a movie a year. Uh, but his movies really do pretty well. Like, you know, Gran Torino was a hit. The Mule, I think, was a reasonable success. The box office, his movies either come in at budget or under budget, undershooting. He's never extravagant with that stuff. So normally he just kind of you know, cranks out these mid-sized vehicles, but awfully uh, poor reception to Richard Jewell. Obviously, just I think too many movies out there right now. And just um, from what I've understood about the movie, they, they said it was good performances, particularly uh, Hauser there playing the lead. Of course, Rockwell is always good. Um, John Hamm. But after that, there's really not... Uh, not a whole lot of love there for Richard Jewell. I didn't get the screener for that, but I'm getting so many screeners. So next week, I'm, I'm going to be reviewing uh, some other films. I just got The Report, Adam Driver, Annette Benning. That movie's supposed to be very good. Uh, Dark Waters with Mark Ruffalo. I'm getting a lot of documentaries as well. So the Oscar nominations are coming out January 13th. I received like literally 20 documentaries. So I'm going to wait to see what actually gets nominated. And then I'm going to you know siphon through those and give my reviews for all of you out there. Because I know many of you, like me, wait to see what's nominated. And you're, okay, I'm going to go check this out. I want to see all the nominees. Speaking of that, next week on the podcast, Golden Globe nominations are coming out. Jan- or excuse me, the awards are January 5th with Ricky Gervais. So Joe and I will be wrapping up the Golden Globe Awards next week. And just uh, things to look ahead to. Uh, January 19th is the SAG Awards. It's Sunday. So that's obviously a very big bellwether for the Oscars. Oscar nominations are January 13th. Uh, so those are key dates to look at, too. And if you're a Larry David fan like me, who isn't? Kirby Enthusiasm returns January 19th. So we'll be reviewing that uh, great, great show as well. Let's dive into it. Star Wars Episode Nine: The Rise of the Skywalker. Following a threat of revenge by the late Emperor Palpatine, Kylo Ren obtains a Sith Wayfinder device on the planet Mustafar, leading him to the unshared planet Exegol. There he finds Palpatine, who reveals that he credited Snoke as a puppet to control the First Order and lure Kylo to the dark side. So I go in here with the raised eyebrow, jaundiced expectations. I just said, listen, I, I like Star Wars. Um, I like the reboot that J.J. Abrams did. I wasn't very a fan of The Last Jedi, which was the last film from Ryan Johnson. And the problem with this movie is I think in many ways, Abrams is trying to undo some of what Ryan Johnson attempted. So you're kind of like you're, you're undoing threads, which were already sewn. 
And then you're trying to do some new threads here. So ultimately, I think the film is decent. But I think, again, it comes to what you are as a Star Wars fan. I'm going to give it two and a half Maple Leafs because I'm not a huge Star Wars uber geek. I'm not walking around dressed up as Darth Vader. I'm not bragging about my lightsaber. You know, I'm more of a fan of Spaceballs. Your Schwartz is as big as mine. Let's see how you handle it. But ultimately, I can appreciate a good crowd pleaser. And the action sequences are well done by Abrams. But honestly, at times, the movie just felt stilted. It didn't feel very original. You know, they, they keep trading on nostalgia. Spoiler alert. Carrie Fisher pops up with archive footage. Mark Hamill as Luke Skywalker. That's right. Han Solo appears for a moment. And great fun. Lando Carlisian is, is back. He's always so good just to see... Uh, uh, Billy D. Williams in the movie as well. But, you know, you can't keep trading on nostalgia. It's a real fine line. I get that it's hard from Abrams' perspective. You're going to have to try to get the old fans who remember those old movies and keep those characters, but also have them invested in this new tribe of characters. And quite honestly, I just don't think the new characters are as interesting or as invigorating as those from the past. You know, Adam Driver's a good actor. He's fine as Kylo Ren, but obviously, I mean, I hope he wins an Oscar for Marriage Story, and I look forward to watching the report. Daisy Ridley is fine as Rey. I don't think it's a compelling character. I think it's a great performance. John Boyega as Finn is fine. Oscar Isaac as is Poe Dameron. Again, he's a really good actor. He's better in other films. No one of those characters really stand out, and that's a problem. When you're rebooting Star Wars, you got to have new characters that can match up with the old. But if I'm walking into the theater saying, hey, it was just great to see Han Solo again. Man, I love seeing Carrie Fisher again. Oh, Mark Hamill's the best. Oh, C-3PO, R2-D2. I'm not walking out of there saying, oh, man, I mean, how great was, you know, whomever, Lupita Nyong'o. I love Richard E. Grant. He pops up as General Pride as well. But honestly, it's fine. It's a fine movie. If you're looking for a big blockbuster, you want some entertainment. If you're a Star Wars fan, I guess you'll be placated. But I was not surprised once I saw mixed reviews from the critics. It's a misstep for Abrams, a guy who normally does quite well when it comes to reviews and box office. I'm sure it's going to make a billion dollars, which is never an issue when it comes to these Star Wars movies. But, you know, the fact that Solo stalled at the box office, Ron Howard tried to come in and save it, you know, that kind of was a sign to Disney. Hey, let's slow our roll here with these movies. Don't just be, keep pumping it out and oversaturating them. Let's take our time, make sure they're good films, and figure out what this universe is going to be. So ultimately, I give it two and a half Maple Leafs. Like I said, it's decent entertainment. I went in with low expectations. It was probably better than I realized. But it, to me, it was not a captivating film the way the best of Star Wars is. Nothing will ever top Empire Strikes Back. And I still think the J.J. Abrams reboot, which was two movies ago, uh, was superior to this one. Joe, have you had a chance to see Star Wars or taken a look at what people are saying online? I've taken a look to see what people are saying, and it seems like there's been a lot of mixed reviews and that there's been a lot of criticism against J.J. Abrams for the plot and the storytelling aspect of it, but it also seems like people are really liking it. So it, it seems kind of polarizing. Is that a fair assessment? I think so. I think the people are either coming out of there going... Oh, that was really good. I'm like, I was expecting more. Mark Kermode of The Guardian. J.J. Abrams proves a safe pair of hands in this crowd-pleasing but unadventurous finale to the latest trilogy of the space opera. I would agree with that review. So that's Star Wars. We move on to Just Mercy. Lawyer Brian Stevenson takes on the case of Walter McMillan, who is sentenced to die for murder despite evidence proving his innocence. In the years that follow, Stevenson encounters racism and legal maneuverings as he fights for McMillan's life. It is Just Mercy, which right now is in limited theaters. I believe it's getting a wider release on um, January 10th. And it's a square, old-fashioned legal thriller. Uh, the best part of the film is Jamie Foxx. He's terrific as Walter McMillan. He got nominated for Best Supporting Actor from the SAG Awards, uh, bumping out Anthony Hopkins for The Two Popes. So Jamie Foxx may get nominated for an Academy Award for his performance as a guy who is an innocent man who has been wronged. And I think it's the best way to describe it. Is just, it's a straightforward biopic. You know, it's about an American fighting injustice and racism in the Deep South. And uh, obviously, it's an honorable story, and it's based on a true story. I was actually sent the book, Just Mercy, but I got to be honest, I got through about 20 pages of it. It's quite a dry. But Brian Stevenson is the founder of that state's Equal Justice Initiative. And he has spent his life here trying to overcome what is just egregious actions, horrifying people sentenced to death penalties, even though they didn't do it. And oftentimes it is just nothing more than horrible racism. And that's why it's a, it's a sturdy film. I think it's one that certainly maybe younger fans will appreciate more. But I just didn't really... I wasn't crazy about Brian Stevenson and the portrayal by Michael B. Jordan. He's obviously a very good actor, but the character was kind of square. Like I said, he, there's just not a lot of depth to him. He's just, he's a good man. He's a crusader. He, he came to me as more of a, 
a hero than a character. You know, there's no real shadings to it. That's not to say he has to have some sort of malady. Is this to have some sort of you know negative side to him? It just didn't feel like a fully fleshed character. Instead, Fox, who plays that small town entrepreneur, you know, his character I was able to have more empathy for. You know, there's no physical evidence. There's a multitude of witnesses, all black, unfortunately, in this case, backing up his alibi. And Walter is just believing in Stevenson as you go through a very familiar procedural trek, legal maneuvers, and then you get courtroom scenes, bathed in sunlight and all the rest of it. So there certainly are some harrowing moments. Uh, Tim Blake Nelson's guy, he's fantastic. Just a, just a wretched looking character. He plays Ralph Myers, who's one of the guys in prison who is very key to Michael B. Jordan. Brie Larson, very uh, glam down. You know, you almost can't recognize her as first. She's playing uh, one of the people helping out B. Jordan in his uh, pursuit of justice. O'Shea Jackson Jr., Cube's kid. He plays Anthony Ray Hinton. And a really good actor, too, is Rob Morgan. I believe he's in Stranger Things. He plays Herbert Richardson. I actually thought that was one of the best passages of the film when, uh, God, he's on death row and they've got to go through the whole whole hor- horrible, sordid chapter. So, Just Mercy, I'm going to give it two and a half Maple Leafs. Again, it's a good but not a great film. See it for Jamie Foxx. If you appreciate a good courtroom thriller, I think this is the kind of film that you can do. And most importantly, props to Michael B. Jordan for this. Just Mercy is the first film made under Warner Media September 2018 company-wide policy aimed at hiring more casting crew from underrepresented groups, which Jordan helped to spearhead. So at the very least, just like Brian Stevenson doing God's work uh, away from the movie theater, Michael B. Jordan doing great work here as well. So props to him for doing that, and I certainly uh, can appreciate his moxie in doing so. Joe, where do you rank in courtroom thrillers? Are you someone who sees the trailer for Just Mercy and says, oh, I can't wait, or you say, well, I can wait till another time? I'm more in the latter group. I'll I'll wait till it's on VOD and watch it at my leisure, but I don't necessarily jump at the opportunity to go to the theater to see it, if that makes any sense. It does. Peter Travis of Rolling Stone. Cretton, who's the director, plays by the rules of a strict legal procedural, which sometimes flattens the drama inherent in the corruption of the judicial process. Once again, Peter Travis, Rolling Stone, and Jeffrey M. Anderson from Common Sense Media. It follows a pretty traditional arc, but this prison-slash-courtroom drama is still effectively tense and moving thanks to fine performances, and the picture presents of simmering racial injustice. That is just mercy. The last film, which I loved, saw on the plane home, Mike Wallace is here. Over half a century, 60 Minutes Fearsome Newsman, Mike Wallace went head-to-head with the world's most influential figures. Relying exclusively on archival footage, the film interrogates the interrogator, tracking Mike's storied career and troubled personal life while unpacking how broadcast journalism evolved to today's precarious tipping point. I've been a lifelong fan of 60 Minutes. You know, my dad loves 60 Minutes. It's one of the great bonds we have is that we always watch it, and generally when I call once a week, we'll mention an episode we saw or a feature we liked, and... I just think it's great journalism. I really do. Even in this day and age, I just think it's smart. It's provocative. I know everything's so quick now and people don't have time and they don't want to handle like a 12-minute story, but I just think it's intellectually stimulating. And I particularly love the old guard, you know, Ed Bradley and Morley Safer. I love because he's Canadian. He was so good. Um, and of course, Mike Wallace. And he's, he's the head of the class in many ways. I don't know if he's my personal favorite. I'd probably go with Safer. Um, and now, of course, you got Anderson Cooper and Leslie Stahl still there hanging out. But uh, Mike Wallace is a legend, man. Let's see what you will about the guy. And certainly we had a, we had a guy who was an interviewing expert, John Sawatsky, fellow Canadian. And he was not a Mike Wallace fan. He said the whole point of interviewers is you're supposed to extract from the subject, whereas Mike Wallace always made himself the subject. He made himself the story. You know, famously, he'd be coming in the room. All right. Hey, you're under arrest. He's like that sheriff kind of saying, all right, 60 minutes here. What do you got? Bludgeoning his way towards justice. But I think what Wallace understood is that it's entertainment. And there's one sequence where you get this guy from the Wall Street Journal who's criticizing Wallace in front of him saying, well, I don't think you're a journalist. I think you're just an entertainer. But I agree with Mike. I think that it's part and parcel of the same thing. And the movie starts out very cleverly with an interview of Bill O'Reilly and Mike Wallace. And Mike Wallace is taking Bill O'Reilly for the fact that he always is very harsh towards his subjects. And O'Reilly says, what are you talking about? I got it from you. Anybody who doesn't like me must not like you because I got my style from you and I just ramped it up some more. It's television. It's theatrical. You got to go after people. That's the way it is. And unfortunately, I think we can all agree it's become too much, whether you're watching MSNBC or Fox News. You know, now it's too much of the, the interviewers jumping in and jumping all over the host and calling them stupid and denigrating them. And you're just looking for clickbait. And it's not nearly as reasoned as it might have been in the past. So if you want to blame Wallace a bit for that, fine. But I think that he was always very fearless with his material. A very famous story, and of course, it's still in the documentaries when interviewing the Ayatollah, and it's so smart the way he does it. You know, he had to give his questions ahead of time, and there was heavy security at the time. And the way he asked this one question, because he had to give the questions ahead of time, but he knew, listen, I'm going to add lips and stuff. Are you kidding? I'm not going to ask the questions they want me to ask. And, and you know, the 
Ayatollah answers it in Farsi and the interpreter answers it. And then Wallace tries to follow up and the interpreter says, well, that question wasn't written down. And Wallace goes, listen, this is how we're going to do the interview. I can't just ask the questions he answers and go to the next one. I have to know what he said. You have to, you have to translate what he said and then I can follow up. We can have a conversation. And then he quotes what one of the other world leaders said. And the way that Wallace puts his hand to his chest is so classy. He says, hey, my words, forgive me. You know, he calls you a lunatic. <laughs> you just see the look on the Ayatollah's face like, man, Mike Wallace had a pair on him. There's no doubt about it. And whether it was Betty Davis or Kirk, he's telling Kirk Douglas he's a terrible father. He's like, no, I heard you're a terrible father. You're a bad dad. And Kirk Douglas, well, you're right about that. Salvador Dali, Mickey Cohen, the gangster. Uh, so uh, well played by Harvey Keitel and Bugsy. Johnny Carson. You know, I really ran the gamut of all these great interviews. And along with seeing those wonderful clips from his career, it's really understanding because of the fact I went to school for radio and television arts, you know, journalism major. I love that kind of stuff. Clearly, this is a movie that I am fascinated by. But I think even somebody who doesn't care about journalism or Mike Wallace would find the personal stuff incredibly poignant. He admits that he was not a very good father. He was described himself as somebody who was absent most of the time, neglectful. And I believe in 1963, around that time, for four or 60 minutes, one of his sons uh, passed away. And, uh, you know, they have the archival footage of him telling that story where he knew something was wrong. And, and he actually found his son. He went to this cliff. He looked down and there. He saw his son. And I said, God, that's got to be the most heartbreaking thing in the world. There's nothing worse than losing a child and to, to be the one to discover him. I mean, I couldn't even imagine what his body looked like and all the emotion of that. In addition to that, I think Mike Wall should be praised for being very public about his battle with depression. You know, he did stories about how Abraham Lincoln would call, you know, this great dark plague over me. You know, Lincoln famously suffered from depression long before anybody knew what it was. And Wallace spoke about it and said when he was going through a very tough chapter, which explained professionally, you know, Barbara Walters has taken him a task for the fact somebody else was writing his questions. It didn't seem like he was his own man. He said, listen, I didn't sleep. You know, I'm taking people, said I'm taking too many pills and the criticism he was taking for that. But he says a deep, dark depression and with, with great candor. He's telling morally safer, but the fact, yeah, I contemplated suicide, that I had a suicide attempt. I mean, it's, I think now, you know, thankfully, mental illness is something people can discuss more often and feels to be a safe place. But I don't think that was the case five years ago. I don't think that was the case 10 years ago. I certainly don't think it was the case 20 years ago, whenever the Mike Wallace interview was taking place with Safer. And uh, for him to be that honest about it, I think, takes a lot of courage. And uh, he's really a guy who was, listen, pugnacious, difficult. One of the funniest moments Morley Safer does, says to, you know, why is it that you're such a prick sometimes? <laughs> Mike Wallace starts laughing. He's like, oh, you know, that's just kind of who I am. So I think he was a little bit rough around the edges. I'm not necessarily sure he's the guy I want to hang out with for a week. You see him at times criticizing his producers, his cameraman, short temper. But I do think to have a dinner conversation with him would be amazing because he could tell you a lot of stories and certainly been around the block. Mike Wallace is here. It's my favorite documentary of the year. It's coming up momentarily in my top 10 of the year. But, Joe, I recommend it highly. I think you'd enjoy it. Oh, I'm definitely going to watch this. I mean, listening to you talk about it, it seems like he was the prototype or just so ahead of his time with how news is handled today, how interviews are handled today. And you're right, this resume of people that he's interviewed is, it seems to be every historic figure in the 1960s, 70s, 80s, 90s. No doubt. Joe Morgenstern of the Wall Street Journal. Avi Belkin's documentary offers fascinating insights into what made its subject tick. A couple of entertainment stories before we get to our top 10 of the year. Quentin Tarantino has some wild ideas for a Halloween 6, which he almost directed. Say what? Early in his career, he was talking about this at a retrospective Q&A with Consequence of Sound. Talking about directing a Halloween 6, taking the reins for both the odd convoluted Halloween 5, The Revenge of Michael Myers, and his own carefully plotted career-making Pulp Fiction. I was like, leave that scene where the man in black shows up, right? And freeze Michael Myers. Tarantino recalled the faceless stranger who arrived at the end of Revenge to spring the shape out of jail for no explicable reason. It's also worth mentioning that apparently even the director of Halloween 5 didn't know who the hell the guy he inserted into his own film was. This is Tarantino. And so the only thing that I had in my mind, I still hadn't figured out who that dude was, was like the first 20 minutes would have been Lee Van Cleef and Michael Myers on the highway on the road and they stop at coffee shops and shit. Whenever Michael Myers stops, he kills everybody. So like leaving a trail of bodies on Route 66. I mean, this is a guy who obviously delves in lots of different genres and different, you know, gory movies. But Tarantino Halloween 6, he says he's only going to make one more movie, which might be the Star Trek movie he directs. But I think a horror movie with Tarantino would be awfully special, don't you? I would love to get his, like, B-movie horror take before he 
goes off and does something else. I would watch this. I wouldn't watch Halloween 5, but I'd watch this. <laughs> exactly. QT's version of it is much better. And also, Happy Trails, Rest in Peace, Lee Mendelson, the producer behind more than 50 animated TV specials featuring Charlie Brown and the Peanuts Gang dying on Christmas Day after a long battle with cancer, 86 years of age. He also wrote the lyrics to Christmas Time is Here, a song featured in a Charlie Brown Christmas, a 1965 special that turned Peanuts into a TV staple. The first of his 12 Emmys he won with the Charlie Brown Christmas. The last one came in 2015 for It's Your 50th Christmas, Charlie Brown. A lifelong fan of jazz, Mendelssohn had the inspiration to hire musician Vince Guaraldi to create original music for Charlie Brown Christmas, a touch that helped make the special stand out with viewers young and old. Over the years, listen, Dave Brubeck, Take 5, Legend, Wynton Marsalis, Unbelievable, B.B. King, George Winston, Phenomenal. Uh, I just think whenever you hear Charlie Brown, I mean, Charlie Brown's a... I, I, I always love Charlie Brown the teacher. You know, quonk, 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 quonk. What's that, Mrs. Crabapple? Quonk, 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 quonk. I mean, it's great. Charlie Brown's so good, Joe. Oh, man. It, it, it seems like 2019, we've lost a lot of people who are really, really a part of, like, the childhood of Americans, you know? And Lee Mendelson was one of those, so he will be missed. No doubt about it. I mean, and Charlie Brown, I remember just because I love baseball so much, as do you. I mean, the fact when Charlie Brown finally won a game, it was one of the greatest moments ever. I remember like, oh my God, the peanut strip of Charlie Brown actually won. <laughs> Seeing him on the mound, I mean, it's just, it's, the eternal loser finally comes through. It right. gives hope to us all. All right, top 10 moves of 2019 coming up next. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m., and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com All right, it's always fun to wrap up the year. Hope all of you had a wonderful 2019 as we wrap up the best films of the year. Honorable mentions. I always give myself five. Abominable. That's right. The Burke Boys love it. I've watched it way too many times to count. Good old story about a snowman. Good soundtrack. All right. I've listened to the soundtrack more times than I can count. Abominable. I'm getting one animated film on my top of the year. And it's ahead of Toy Story 4, damn it. And Frozen 2, which thankfully I did not sit through. Got the screener. Boys enjoyed it. Abominable is in there. The Mustang. Terrific film from Matthias Schoenert. plays the lead actor. Story about redemption. A guy in prison. And based on a true story where they have inmates actually work with wild Mustangs. And you can see the metaphors here about, you know, taming the wild Mustangs, trying to tame your wild past. But this film is held together by Schoenert's. Check out Lines Day. My friend Ben Lines, his podcast. He had a really good interview with uh, Matt Mathias Chenerets. I just think that guy's such a good actor. Soulful look in his eyes. And just that was such a unique, you know, true independent film. The fact that it's a story, but like I said, a prison inmate dealing with wild Mustangs. Like, you don't see that in all your multiplexes. But I thought it was a really unique special film. Booksmart's the funniest movie of the year. Really funny movie. I mean, props to Olivia Wilde who directed it and the, the chemistry of the actors, particularly uh, Beanie Feldstein, Jonah Hill's sister. Um, a lot funner than I think you'd expect going in. You know, these these smart girls, best friends, were looking to party before they say goodbye. It's got your gross-up moments and certainly some memorable moments, but a lot of heart as well, just like those Judd Apatow gross-up movies. And it's also got one freakadelic scene where they're animated characters, which I can't even begin to describe. I recommend the movie just for that alone. Book smart. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the first time I saw it, I gave it two and a half Maple Leafs. I wasn't crazy about it. I'll bump it up to three because the second viewing, I did appreciate it more. I think it's overstuffed. But I can appreciate Tarantino's just love of Hollywood. It comes through in every single frame and the homages uh, that he's making towards the, the films of the past. And I really did love the acting. I mean, Pitt is just cooler than anybody on the planet. DiCaprio, the scene particularly where he's uh, berating himself, he's just self-flagellating, <laughs> telling himself no more whiskey sours is really funny. I would have liked Margot Robbie's character to be more developed. 
Um, but of course, the ending paying a uh, tribute to Tarantino's penchant for revisionist history. Good soundtrack as well, as always. I just thought it was too damn long, right? Two hours, 40 minutes. I would have liked it to be about 210. That's why I'm not putting it in my top 10. And Honey Boy. I think a lot of this has to do with Shia LaBeouf trading on his persona, but the fact he had the guts, I just think it's such a raw personal movie. He made a movie about his life. He's got, you know, Lucas Hedges playing him as a guy who after a DUI and after a big hit movie goes into rehab. So he's playing him and then he's playing his own father. And he had to tell his dad, don't worry, Mel Gibson's playing you. That's how he got his dad's consent to make the movie. But it's, like I said, raw and personal, the words that I come to. Remind me a lot of ways of This Boy's Life, the great De Niro DiCaprio movie. Um, some painful scenes to watch, the way he's abusing his son. And again, it's trading off the persona of knowing what Shia LaBeouf himself went through. But I just love any sort of filmmaking like that that's just so honest and revealing. Uh, ben Lyons, once again, shout out to him. He had Honey Boy's his best picture of the year. I'm putting his honorable mention. Scott Feinberg, a Hollywood Report. I believe he had it at number four. So it's certainly a movie that I think people that have seen liked a lot. Michael Buick, we had him recently on the podcast. He mentioned the fact he wish Honey Boy was getting more love. I will put it as an honorable mention. That leads us to the top 10. Mike Wallace is here. I mentioned it earlier. It's my favorite documentary of the year, not just because of my love for journalism, but I think it shows that Mike Wallace was ahead of his time as this bulldog interviewer. The fact he, you know, Took No Prisoners, was ferocious when he was dealing with people, loved truly investigative journalism. I don't know how much of that occurs right now, but the fact that he was truculent at times probably led to many ways to his success. But I loved also seeing his personal side, the fact that he had to deal with the greatest tragedy anybody can deal with, which is the loss of a child, and also his battles with depression. Mike Wallace is here, I think, is just a riveting documentary. 90 minutes, it's really well done. Number nine is The Two Popes. A real surprise for me. I thought going in, okay, this movie's going to be kind of dry, a little bit stilted, but it wasn't at all. Credit for Nana Morales, who was Academy Award nominated Best Director for City of God way back in the day. Hasn't worked much since. His last one, I believe, was 2011. But he has a real swift direction about it. Excellent script from Anthony McCarthy. I hope he gets nominated. I think it's a great script, a reimagining what would happen when the two popes are talking about a potential passing of the torch. And, of course, the two actors. It's a master class in acting from Jonathan Price and Anthony Hopkins. I hope Price gets nominated for Best Actor. I hope Hopkins, Hopkins gets nominated for Supporting Actor. I just saw Jonathan Price on Colbert, and he was saying, you know, for years people often said, hey, you look like Cardinal Bergoglio. And he said that uh, maybe that's why he was cast. And even Morales said when he was looking up cast, he said, yeah, that is true. As soon as you tell up his name, you do see Jonathan Price side by side with him. But of course, it's much more than just the facial resemblance. It's the character. And I think it's a really smart way of looking at, you know, religion and faith, but also at modernity versus uh, the classics. And the movie doesn't take sides. You know, Hopkins' character is more old school, whereas um, Price's character is trying to bring the church into a different mold. But both guys are smart. Both guys have a lot to say. And I think it's a really engaging film and a really pleasant surprise. The Two Popes is currently on Netflix. It's my number nine movie. Number eight is Jojo Rabbit, an oddball film from Taika Waititi, one of the entertainers of the year. How about the chutzpah to put together this movie? He's part Jewish and he says, no, I'm going to make a movie which... A kid, his imaginary friend, is Adolf Hitler, and I'm going to play Hitler in the movie. Uh, following in the trails of great films like Life is Beautiful, even Mel Brooks came out and said, oh, I love this film. So once you get the uh, imprimatur of Mel Brooks, who, uh, of course, everybody remembers the producers in Springtime for Hitler, the fact that he gives it an endorsement is no such small thing. And uh, I think good performances all around. Not only the kid in the movie is really good, Scarlett Johansson, Rockwell is always fantastic playing one of the Nazis, who's surprising as a good side. Jojo Rabbit is an oddball curiosity, but I think it's funny, and I think it's endearing, and I think it's a sweet film. Number seven is Blinded by the Light. I love this movie. Came out in the summer. I think it's one of Gurinder Chadha's best films, or best since Bennett like Beckham. Uh, it's about a Pakistani kid growing up in England whose parents want him to have a traditional lifestyle. Instead, he loves writing, and that's his passion. He's trying to you know, deal with this culture clash, and all of a sudden, he hears the music of Bruce Springsteen, and it's rapturous joy for him. For the first time he hears Born to Run, all of a sudden, now his life is transformed. He's obsessed with Springsteen, and he finds a new passion in his life. I thought it was a really lovely story about a coming-of-age tale. Maybe you're going to be a Springsteen fan to enjoy it. I definitely could imagine those who are not are rolling their eyes if they're trying to watch this movie, but... I like Bruce. I mean, hell, I live in Jersey. I better love Bruce. And uh, I thought it had a real great energy to it. You know, the sequence when they first play Born to Run and, I mean, there's this, this dance montage. It's almost like a Bollywood movie. Grinder Chadha's paying homage to. I mean, I was pumping my fist in the theater. And at the ending, the reconciliation between father and son and when she accepts his son's own path, I thought it was one of the most beautiful moments of the entire year. I got choked up when I was watching it. I love Blinded by the Light. I hope people see it. It's available now on DVD. A really strong father and son movie. You know, a movie just about a coming-of-age tale. Number six is Marriage Story. 
tremendous performances, not only from Adam Driver, who might win Best Actor, not only Scarlett Johansson, who might win Best Actress, but my pick to win Best Supporting Actress, that would be Laura Dern playing just a ferocious lawyer. I mean, she's so cunning. The way she's smiling at Adam Driver, she knows she's basically trying to screw this guy of everything he has because she's representing ScarJo. Wonderful. Good supporting turns as well. Alan Alda, good to have Ray Liotta in the film. A little typecast, but it's always good to see Ray being uh, as carnivorous as possible. I think Noah Baumbach's a lock to win Best Original Screenplay. You know, he gets knocked sometimes. He's 50 years old. I believe he's made 12 or 14 movies. People think his movies are just, you know, he's just based it on himself, but... I even read this article in Hollywood Report in which he said, listen, when you're making a movie, you know, obviously you always have to draw from yourself. You know, what's the first rule of writing is you have to make it personal. You're drawing on your own experiences. And he said, when I'm writing, it's like I put two rocks together. The two rocks spark together. That creates friction. That creates a story. So am I basing this on partly on my divorce to Jennifer Jason Lee, what I went through? Sure. Um, but ultimately, I've got to find some source of inspiration. And as I've seen people tweeting, it probably should have been called divorce story, not marriage story. But the ending, the opening is so smart. The fact it starts out on a very sweet note and them praising each other and then it dovetails what happened in their marriage. And the third act specifically, I think it's now become a meme where drivers punching the wall. I'm sure SNL has got their uh, satirical spoofs already, but that's about as uh, cold-blooded, cutthroat scene as I've seen between a couple. Uh, my boss, Dave Patterson, MLB Network, texted me because it reminded me of Tony and Carmella. I said, oh, yeah, that's a great, great scene when uh, eventually Tony gets kicked out. The scene where he punches the wall and uh, she confesses her love for Furio. It's it's on that level. And it, God, if you want to go all the way back, it's like uh, Burton and Taylor, you know, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf? And Mary's story, I think, in many ways, drawing comparison to Kramer versus Kramer, uh, the last divorce film to win Best Picture. It really is a special film. I did deduct half of Maple Leaf. I'm sticking with this. I said to Adam as well, the scene which a lot of people are mentioning where drivers sing Sondheim's Being Alive, I just thought was so pretentious. And trust me, this film is a little bit pretentious. I can see people saying, I don't want to see a damn way but a theater director and his actress wife and following their loves. Like it's a, it is definitely on the nose. It's definitely appealing to the, uh, the movie industry. But that scene in particular, I was like, hang on a second. This is a little bit much. <laughs> so I deducted a half of Maple Leaf. Marriage Story still though is number six. Number five is Midsommar. Ari Aster's follow-up to Hereditary, which Martin Scorsese loved. When I saw Marty speak at the New York Film Festival, he was raving about Ari Aster's Hereditary and said he had not seen Midsommar. Hopefully, Marty has seen it since then. This was a real shock to me. Uh, it was Kubrickian at times in the way it's style and slowly developing horror movie, but it's also ridiculously funny. It's not what you'd expect out of a horror film, but... The fact it's occurring all during daylight makes it even more shocking at times. There are twists that you're not going to see coming. It is a, a metaphor for bad breakups, and it, it was something you're not going to be able to shake. I mean, I walked out of that theater laughing and uh, cringing at some of the scenes that I saw in there. It is definitely in your face. It pulverizes you at times, but I also think it's smart. I love the way it's beautifully shot. Memorable performances. Florence Pugh, it was in Little Woman. I, I thought she was excellent in this movie, playing the lead. As you see, the, the range of emotions that a horror actress has to go through. Midsommar, Scott Rogowski's with me. It's a great film. Number five of my best pictures of the year. Number four is Last Black Man in San Francisco. We were lucky enough to talk to Joe Talbot here on Cinephile. I think it's a wonderful movie. I think it's a special movie. I think people will talk about it more years from now. It's been snubbed so far from the Oscar run-up. It uh, you know got some love from the Spirit Awards, the Gotham Independent Spirit Awards, but I wish more people were talking about it. But bottom line is this. It's a great movie. And full credit to Joe. Tell about what he did with it and the style and the look of the film. And honestly, Jimmy Fails, who co-wrote the story as well. Um, as I read one reviewer saying that, you know, it's, I believe it was Entertainment Weekly said, I think it's Leah Greenblatt. She was saying, you know, the story's about a guy who's trying to reclaim his childhood home. But thinking this movie's about real estate is like saying Citizen Kane is about a sled. It is a deeply poetic film. I thought it was beautifully rendered. Uh, I was really swept up in the spell that it casts over you. Again, you think of great independent movies, which I worry about going by the wayside. But thankfully, there still are movies like Last Black Man in San Francisco. By the way, speaking of any movies, A24 has got a real hit in their hands with uncut gems on a side. Now, the fact movies really done well at the box office. That's a good sign there for independent movies. But uh, Last Black Man in San Francisco, uh, as the character says, you don't love San Francisco enough to hate it. Uh, in his own logic, it makes sense. And I think in many ways, it's a metaphor. You know, the, the childhood home that he's trying to reclaim in this era of San Francisco going through this gentrification where people can't afford these homes anymore. I think it's a metaphor for just something you've loved and lost. And I think that's why it felt so powerful to me. It doesn't have to be a home. It could be a loved one. It could be a job. It could be a pet. 
It's just something that you love so much that you love to reclaim. Now, as he's telling the, the mortgage broker, he says, listen, I don't care what rate you're going to give me. You can charge whatever you want. Like, I just, I love this home more than anything else in life. It actually made me think of Rushmore, the fact that Jason Schwartzman never wants to leave. You know, the, the secret to happiness is like, there's nothing in my life I love more than Rushmore. I never want to leave this place. And that's what's uh, heartbreaking in many ways about Jimmy Fails' character in Last Black Man in San Francisco. There's nothing more that he loves in that house. Even on a greater theme, if you take it at face value, I do think there's something to be said for architecture. Now I live in this beautiful, sprawling home in Hohokus, and I don't intend to ever leave this house either. I think there is something to be said for when you have a home, you have memories, and what all that entails to you. Last Black Man in San Francisco, as you can tell by my rhapsodizing, is a film that really had a strong impact upon me. Number three is 1917, an absolute tour de force from Sam Mendes. Everyone knows how much I love Scorsese, and I hope he wins Best Director for the Irishman. I'd have no issue if Sam Mendes wins, because honestly, what he pulls off here is amazing. To quote a Hollywood reporter, an exemplary panorama of the horrors of war is designed as an inescapable immersion in the unrelieved pressure and sheer wretchedness of the battlefront. Notable technically for the real-time fluidity of its presentation of ongoing events across nearly two hours, 1917 is a protean display of virtuoso filmmaking. One that film estates will wallow in, but even ordinary audiences will notice and appreciate. As I said before, Roger Deakins, the cinematographer, said, did it look hard to do? Good, because it was. They had three months to put the soldiers through boot camp. Then they had three months just to block the movie. Think about that. It's like a stage play, which is no surprise because Mendes is a very accomplished uh, theater director, but it's like a stage play. You take three steps here, then three steps right, then this bomb's going to go off. And one of the issues that they had, I just read this article, Deacon said that it was actually too sunny. In England, it was too sunny, so it was often if I had to wait for the clouds. I was not going to light this with the sun there. That's not what the movie's about. You think of World War I, you're thinking of trenches, you're thinking of mud, uh, you're thinking of sprawling spaces, and the fact that that camera never leaves. It is more than just a gimmick. That's the biggest thing I want to impart. This is not just... Oh, it's kind of like Birdman, right? The camera never cuts. No, no, no. This are seven and eight minute takes, elaborate takes sewn together with these just invisible cuts, which you can't tell, which trust me, watching, I had no idea where the cut was. It looks like it's one long shot and the camera is like a character. It follows the characters very slowly, tracking along as they're going through the trenches. Then it speeds up as this one great mad dash to the battlefield. It's one of my favorite sequences of the year. It's just extraordinary while you're watching it. You're just you're enveloped by the whole beauty of it. And sometimes the camera stays still. It just kind of stays in the characters' faces, and particularly the actor, uh, George McKay. God, he's terrific. I hope he has a really good career at him. I thought he was really good at Schofield. He and Blake, Dean Charles Chapman, particularly McKay. The camera just sits on his face, and he realizes. Simplistic story here. you got to contain orders not to proceed with a planned advance from the front because of intelligence confirming the advance from the front because of an enemy trap. That's the story. That's why it's set in two hours. You're going to go over there and there's booby traps and dangers along the way. But honestly, it's a movie. If you're a movie lover, if you're a cinephile, it's a concise focus story, but it is incredible on a technical level what they did. Not only director Sam Mendes, but Roger Deakins, a cinematographer. He's only won one Academy Award, which is insane. He's going to get nominated for the 15th time for this movie. And I hope he wins because this is no small feat what he pulls off with 1917, a truly ambitious World War I film, a harrowing odyssey of two British soldiers. Speaking of harrowing, that would be our number two movie of the year. That's right, Parasite from Bong Joon-ho. The less you know, the better it is. Even Bong Joon-ho, if you ask him about the movie, he says, well, I don't want to tell you anything about it. And honestly, I haven't told you much about it either. Just go see it. I can't tell you enough. It's a class struggle is all I will tell you. It is a poor family who infiltrates a rich family. And uh, very slowly and very deliberately, each person in the family gets a job and away we go. But you will not see the twist coming. And once you see an old character pop up and say, I got to get something from the basement, the movie is absolutely bonkers. It makes you delirious with glee at just what is capable here when it comes to great filmmaking and what a truly inspired filmmaker can do. And that's exactly what Bong Joon-ho does. It upends expectations at every single turn. There's only 960 cuts in the film compared to about 1,500 for a typical Korean action movie, mostly because Bong prefers to edit within the camera as a penchant for panning. And again, I'm in the I'm in the bag here for Scorsese, but if Bong Joon-ho wins Best Director, no issues from me because I don't know if it's a satirical comedy about class structure or it's a horror movie or it's a thriller, but Bong himself calls the film a, a comedy without clowns, a tragedy without villains. But fortune clearly favors the job as this family is trying to be opportunistic and take care of these snobbish aspirations, but the plan never runs smoothly, and it is callous when you see the way that people are treated in South Korea at this time. It's a bloody struggle for survival, and it really is a remarkable movie. Number one, of course, 
is The Irishman. I saw it three times in movie theaters. It is a landmark film from Martin Scorsese, his latest masterpiece. It is elegiac and mournful about a bunch of aging gangsters looking back at their lives. It is impeccably acted by everyone. De Niro has been ignored so far by the Globes and the Sags. Please, January 13th, do the right thing, Academy. Vote him for best actor ahead of Christian Bale for Ford versus Ferrari. That's the right choice. Just because it's an interior performance and it's quiet does not mean it's great. And I think in many ways, Pacino and Pesci own the film. In the final 30 minutes, De Niro owns the film. He's one of the great actors of all time. For God's sakes, please nominate him for best actor. He hasn't been nominated for best actor since Cape Fear, which came out in 1991. He was nominated for Supporting Actor for Silver Lines Playbook, but he deserves it for The Irishman, not only for his performance, which is so interior, but also the fact he's the one who brought the project together. You know, originally him and Marty were talking about, you know, connecting for a while, and they were going to do this movie uh, based on a Don Winslow novel, Frankie Machine, but eventually he read the book, which Eric Roth gave him. I heard you paint houses, and that made the movie. He's the one who lured Joe Pesci out of retirement. It was amazing, the movie. It's some of the most subtle work of his career. He's so restrained. It's so atypical of what you see of Pesci in a Scorsese film. Rather than being you know, Tommy, guns blazing, you know, here he is. He's very quiet, the quiet Don, just smart and measured. And, of course, there's my man Al Pacino. He's my favorite actor of all time. He completely invigorates the movie. Anybody who says he's over the top doesn't know what they're talking about because Hoffa himself was over the top. He himself was a blustery character, a rabble rouser. And so Pacino can do that in his sleep. He can really galvanize the audience just as he does all those union organizers. But what Pacino can do better than anybody is show the poignance within the character. And I thought about Donnie Brasco, the scene where Donnie is taking his jewelry off. And, and that whole scene is about as moving as Pacino's ever done when it comes to something without dialogue. The scene where he gets in the car with De Niro and the way he hugs him and De Niro holds the hug just a beat long. I mean, it just it brings a tear to your eye at just how beautiful both those two actors are playing it. These are the lines in winter. First time ever Pacino with Scorsese, De Niro Pesci and Marty reuniting. It's a special movie. Ignore those morons out there saying it's too long. It's not too long. It's perfect. It's three hours and 25 minutes of goodness. Watch the film. Hopefully you saw it in theaters. Watch it over and over again. And it's a lot funnier than you realize. Steve Zellian wrote the script. Uh, of course, won an Oscar for Schindler's List. Wrote Searching for Bobby Fisher. And wrote Gangs of New York, which I love. And uh, he puts a lot of humor in the movie. It is observant. It's smart about human nature. And it really is um, a moving meditation about old age and looking back at life with regrets. And it deals with timeless themes like loyalty and betrayal. I do not think it is terrain that they've covered before. I think in this case, clearly, uh, Marty and Bob and Joe said, all right, if we're going to do this, we've got to do this differently. And the fact it feels differently than Goodfellas and Casino, if you're saying, well, it's not Goodfellas and Casino, well, it's not supposed to be. That's on you. That's your fault. You should realize this is a different movie. They are not going to be repetitive. And they should get credit for the fact that they're dealing with these familiar tropes and the fact these guys have made the best organized films the last decades, but they're doing it in a different manner. It's a big, bold, and beautiful film and it's a masterpiece and it's my best picture of the year the Irishman, my favorite of 2019 to recap the honorable mentions abominable the mustang book smart honey boy and once upon a time in hollywood number 10 mike wallace is here number nine the two popes number eight jojo rabbit number seven blinded by the light number six marriage story number five midsommar Number four is Last Black Man in San Francisco. Number three is 1917. Number two is Bong Joon-ho's Parasite and the best film of the year, and I hope it wins Best Picture, Martin Scorsese's The Irishman. Joe, the floor is yours. Oh, boy. There, there are so many good movies this year. I just want to give one honorable mention before I do my list, and that was this rom-com that came out on Netflix this year that I think surprised a lot of people, everyone I know who saw it, but that's Always Be My Maybe. Uh, it yes. was, yeah, it was written by Randall Park, Ali Wong. I love both of them, particularly Ali Wong. And it was just a feel-good rom-com, totally came out of left field. So I'd recommend that to anyone. I didn't get a chance to see it, but Nanachka Khan is the sister of my agent, Nick Khan, with CAA. And uh, I obviously liked off the, Fresh Off the Boat. I watched the first season or so of that show, and I like Randall Park a lot. The trailer looked really funny. I love Mariah Carey. And Keanu Reeves apparently steals the movie playing... Uh, I guess not a bad guy, but uh, the lover of her and, you know, there's a whole bunch of stuff in there. You can speak to it better than I can. But Keanu playing a bad guy, but still very charming is my understanding. Oh, yeah. It is the cameo of the year, probably the decade. I can't even, I'm not even exaggerating when I say that. You have to watch it just for Ke uh, Keanu Reeves' performance in it. Nice. I love it. All right. So number 10 I have, and I'll add the caveat, I haven't seen all the great movies from this year. So these are of the movies that I've seen my top 10. Number 10, I have Dolomite Is My Name. 
Eddie Murphy coming back. The film's raunchy. It's filthy, and I couldn't take my eyes off of it. So definitely, Dolomite is my name. Number ten, number nine. I have Motherless Brooklyn, Ed Norton's uh, adaptation to the book, throwback nostalgia, nineteen forties Brooklyn, nineteen fifties uh, New York. It, it was great. I really enjoyed it. A uh, great soundtrack, by the way. I've been getting a lot of soundtracks in the mail sent to me here by the critics. Uh, Motherless Book, an excellent score. I hope it gets nominated for score. Go yeah, ahead, Joe. definitely. And then I have uh, Avengers Endgame. I threw that on there because it, it, it just seemed like such a big undertaking to wrap up this whole universe. And I think that the Russo brothers were able to do it in a way where everybody got screen time, everybody had their moments in the movie, and it was a nice conclusion to this 10-year epic that, they cre- uh, that Marvel created. Number seven, I have Midsommar. And exactly what you said before, it's so funny. I was able to catch it over the holiday break, and a horror movie set in the daytime seems very hard to do, but it's done incredibly. Um, Number six is another horror movie, Us, Jordan Peele's follow-up, a sophomore effort, Lupita Nyong'o in it. Number five, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It might be a little too long. I'm interested to see, and I don't know about you, Adnan, how when Quentin Tarantino possibly brings it to Netflix, how that's how he'll expand the story. So if it was a little bit longer or if he had a little bit more time, I, it probably would be higher. But right now it's at my number five. Yeah, I'm with you on that because there is talking about the three and a half hour version. In fact, I was reading a little bit about it. They said that there's some really good scenes with Leo and the, the uh, girl actress in the movie. Actually, it's one of the best scenes in the movie is that the sequence they have, but they felt that they'd already kind of established that, but the scene where she tells him that he's a good actor. But apparently there's a great scene which they cut between the two of them. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Well, you and I actually have the same number four, uh, The Last Black Man in San Francisco. I watched nice. it over the, the break, too, and it was oh, it, w- it was so good. And those tracking shots, those tracking shots, I don't know how they did it. When they're riding the skateboard, uh, I can't add to what you said, so I'll just tell everyone to, to definitely put it on their list, and I hope it gets some love during the award season. Number three, I have The Irishman, and nice. I agree with you. I don't know why people are saying it's too long. People love miniseries, too, and they'll devote time to that. So it's only a three-and-a-half-hour film, and people... That's a poor excuse. If that's if that's the thing keeping you from watching it, get over it. You, everyone needs to see the movie. It's really, really great. Yeah, people spend weekends binge-watching This Is Us, but apparently can't have three-and-a-half hours to watch The Irishman. A ludicrous argument. Right. And also, I saw online someone... Uh, broke it into a miniseries, too, telling people to stop at this point, stop at this point, if you want to take time with it. But yeah. at the same time, just sit down. You can pause it if you need to. It's on Netflix, but watch it. It's too good not to be seen. And then number two, Marriage Story, really, really great. So real, so raw. Adam Driver, Scar Joe's really good in it, but Adam Driver, that scene that you're talking about where he punches the wall, it's just incredible. Um, and then number one, I have Parasite for so many reasons. I'm really rooting for it. Horror movie, foreign language movie, a movie that no one really knew what they're getting into when they saw it originally. Talking to people I know, I would definitely put it at my number one, Parasite. I love it, man. So we both have Parasite and The Irishman in our top three, respectively. So I, I'm with you that uh, it's an incredible. It's, it really is the word of mouth movie of the year, and I'm glad to see it's a hit. Like worldwide, it's been $120 million. I mean, that, that's huge for a foreign film. And I believe domestic, it's at $20 million. Again, for a foreign film, that's really good. And I think once it gets uh, nominated for the Oscars, more people will see it. Um, it just upends expectations, right? You go to the movies to be shocked, to be surprised. Nobody could expect anything that happens in that movie, right? Yeah, and it takes some t- weird twists and turns, and you think it's going to start out as one thing, but then it ends as another thing, and it's unsettling at the end, too. So you don't really, I, for me personally, I don't know how you felt, but I didn't really know how to feel at the end, which I love it when I can see a movie that doesn't tell me how to feel at the end, if that makes any sense. You know, I agree with you. Like, it's a somber ending, but I, I, was, I, I wasn't sad because I was so exhilarated by the filmmaking. Right, like it's it's, yeah. it's 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 a it's it's a sad tale ultimately, and and a moving one. But rather than feeling distressed, I was exhilarated. I said, "God, that's an incredible movie!" Right? Yeah, it, definitely worth seeing. If no one's seen it yet, excited to see how it'll do at the Oscars. Absolutely, and I think it's listen. The fact it got nominated for the best actor ensemble cast for the SAGs. I mean, that is huge, huge blow to Little Women. It did not get nominated. It's huge that Parasite did. 
The last foreign film to do so, the only other one to do so, was Life is Beautiful, La Vita Bella, uh, Roberto Benigni's film. A couple other tidbits here, just because uh, we were talking so much about those movies. Um, I just A couple of things here I want to mention about 1917. You know, just the fact that it's one continuous shot. 65-day shoot is where they did it. I mentioned the fact that weather was always tough to do. But as Mendy said, he goes, I don't want people scrutinizing it while they're watching it the first time. There's a danger when you talk about a movie so much before release that people going looking at the camera or looking at the stitches. The reason for not ruling that stuff is not because I'm coy. I don't want people thinking about it. And Deacon, cinematographer as well, said, you'd be surprised. Sometimes you might think, oh, that must be a cut there, but it wasn't. But however they did it, the one shot could see it made editing the movie a harrowing adventure on its own. On a traditional film, you can manipulate and juxtapose scenes and trim things and make changes, said Lee Smith, the editor. By the way, Lee Smith, the editor, is going to get some props. This film, you had to be very confident you picked the right take so the next take could line up, which is also nerve-wracking because if you're wrong and you want to swap it out later or do what you normally would do, it has a domino effect. The single-shot concept also is a challenge for Thomas Newman, who scored the picture. It affects your choices because moments of transition are never corresponding to cuts. By the way, I got the soundtrack, along with Motherless Brooklyn, 1917 is one of my favorite soundtracks of the year. That score is incredible. Newman is a genius. And true to its ticking clock thriller star, Mendes finished the film just six days before its first public screen, November 23rd at the DGA in New York. So he took it all down to the wire, and he said maybe one day he'll tell people how he actually put it all together, but it's amazing. Also, one of the big stories of the year was, of course, Scorsese taking a shot at Marvel movies, Hollywood Reporter Roundtable of all the directors. They ask him about it. This is the uh, writer. The other change you mentioned recently was you said superhero movies are not cinema, they're theme parks. Noel Baumbach, the director of Marist says, Marty, what did you do? A friend of Morellas who directed The Two Popes, it became a big thing. I was asked in India about it. You've never been asked to direct a Marvel film? Scorsese, no, never came to me. I remember when Disneyland was built. I'm that ancient, you know. I was here in 1970 in LA, and one of the aspirations of the studios was to become as important to American culture as Disneyland. And the first studio to really do that was Universal with a tour. And then you had the blockbuster on top of that. And why not? People go to the movie, enjoy it, that sort of thing. So the sense of a theme park has always been there. It's not bad. We used to love to go to amusement parks. But now in an amusement park, you have the film, Bombback. The Kundun ride is amazing. Scorsese laughs. It's almost as good as the Breaking Out the Dead ride. Lulu Wang, who directed The Farewell. I don't think what you were saying was negative. You were making a distinction between cinema and the other thing, the bigger entertainment thing, which is really made by committee. And that's one of the reasons I don't want to do it right now. Scorsese, don't do it. Because I haven't forgotten my voice as a filmmaker, Wang said. Todd Phillips, director of Joker. Scorsese said, that's always the case. It's always been, won't he stop with this art business? Here's what Phillips had to say, director Joker. Marty got a lot of heat for what he said, but I understood it fully. We were struggling to get Joker made, which sounds funny because it exists in the superhero world, but it's really not one of those movies. We spent a year at Warner Brothers, and I saw emails back and forth, literally where they said, does he realize we sell Joker pajamas at Target? I go, didn't movies come first and pajamas come second? Are the pajamas dictating the movies? Scorsese, no, no. Phillips, theme park rides, pajamas, Slurpee cups, whatever it is that you are selling out the back of movies, you can't make your decisions based on that. I thought that was pretty revealing. Recall. All right, now it's time for Total Recall. We're looking at 2015 Oscars. These are the films from 2014. Best Picture, Joe, what were the nominees? For Best Picture, we have Birdman or The Unexpected Virtue of Ignorance. We have American Sniper, Boyhood, The Grand Budapest Hotel, The Imitation Game, Selma, and The Theory of Everything, and Whiplash. Yeah, it's interesting. This is what obviously the Oscars. We've been doing these in the past. There's only five movies. Now I'm like, God, there's a lot of movies. Um, I don't think it's Birdman. I, I didn't like the ending. I did appreciate the virtuoso camera work and what Inaritu was going for, but no. American Sniper, I liked the second half better than the first half where he's dealing with the issues of post-traumatic stress syndrome I thought was really well done. Boyhood, I loved. Grand Budapest Hotel, I actually think he's done better work. Imitation Game was really good. Actually, a little bit underrated. I would, um, hmm, through everything I hated, I thought it was horribly overrated. Whiplash, I love. I would go with, hmm, it's going to be a, a trio of Boyhood, Whiplash, or Selma. Man, that's tough to pick. I got to be honest. I mean, Whiplash, I loved because I just love the performances of J.K. Simmons so much. I know he won supporting actor, 
But I thought Selma was really good and really underrated. Really didn't get much love at all. I will go with Selma only because I think it's been so overlooked that year for all the nominations. You know, it was up for Best Picture, and I believe the music. I think Common did one of the songs. I will go with Selma for Best Picture, but I wouldn't have any quibbles with Boyhood, which I think was, again, much more than a gimmick. The fact that Richard Linklater took like a decade to tell the story, just filming every year bit by bit, I thought it was really an extraordinary experiment. But I'm going to go with Selma. But I did really love Boyhood, Imitation Game, and Whiplash. How about you, Joe? I agree with you that it's definitely not Birdman, but I'm going to go with Whiplash. Loved it. Loved the performances. Loved the score. The score was fantastic as well, and the story. So I'm going to go with Whiplash. All right, good call. Best director, what do we have? We have Alejandro Inaritu for Birdman, Linklater for Boyhood, Bennett Miller for Foxcatcher, Wes Anderson, The Grand Budapest Hotel, and Morton Tildum, The Imitation Game. Yeah, remember, I've talked about Foxcatcher. I just didn't think it was as strong as it should be. Anderson's made better work. But again, I love uh, Rushmore and Royal Tenenbaum. So I wanted to give him for that. Fine. Morton Tildum. How about that name? <laughs> no one has thought about Morton Tildum. I mean, that is shocking. I want to know what else Morton Tildum has done in his life. Somebody tweet me. Cinephile Pod or Adnan S. Ferg. I, I was, I, and I just said I really liked the imitation game a lot, but I had no idea it was directed by Morton Tildum, whose work I'm unfamiliar with. I would go with Link later. I think he's a great director. Maybe obviously made very good movies like uh, Dazed and Confused and uh, the Four Sunrise series. But I think what he did with Boyhood was awfully special. I would have gone with Linklater, but I did appreciate what Inarritu did. The camera work of Birdman was awfully special. Uh, I would go with Linklater or Wes Anderson, not Morton. Yeah, I wouldn't you? go with Morton either, but I agree with you. I think Richard uh, Linklater deserves it. And what you said before, it's more than a gimmick. I, the, the movie itself is really good. And the fact that he took so long to make it, it there's credit to it. So I would, I would give it to him. All right, best actor. I already hate who won it, but go ahead. <laughs> well, we have Eddie Redmayne, The Theory of Everything, Steve Carell, Foxcatcher, Bradley Cooper, American Sniper, Benedict Cumberbatch, The Imitation Game, Michael Keaton, Birdman. I love Michael Keaton. I mean, I've told the story before here on Cinephile. I was at the Oscars, of course, covering it with Ben Lines, and we went to the after party and waiting to get some fries, and I'm telling my wife, I don't know how we should do this because there's Michael Keaton. And as I'm plotting as to what to say to him, he sees me. <laughs> and to my great amazement, said, hey, Adnan. <laughs> said, wow. Oh, my God. Michael Keaton knows me. And I was like, hey, man, how are you? And he's like, good, good. And I mean, he has a reputation. Me, one of the great guys in Hollywood. Nice guy down to earth. But I, I wanted to think of some of the nobody else says. Of course, my wife blurted at the end. Oh, I love Beetlejuice, which I'm sure he. I, think he, I don't think he rolled his eyes. He's too polite. He's kind of like, oh, yeah, thanks. But I mentioned uh, Game 6, which I said, and of course, he knew who I was, so it actually helped. I was like, well, obviously, you know I'm a sportscaster. I go, I love Game 6, man. He's like, oh, yeah. He goes, game six. We made that way for like 100 grand. He goes, we made that way for like nothing. I said, no, it was great. It's about a uh, guy who's a diehard Boston. For those who don't know, Game 6 is a reference to the 1986 World Series. And Keaton plays a playwright whose play is open the same time as Game 6 of the 86 World Series is unfolding. And Boston's looking to overcome this long uh, World Series jinx. And I go, man, that movie was awesome. You were great. And he's like, oh, thanks, man. He goes, we made it for nothing. It was when Keaton wasn't doing a whole lot. He was kind of in the doldrums, of course. And he came roaring back. So I would go with Keaton for Birdman. I, I thought it really was his show because, you know, he's playing a guy. In many ways, he's like himself, right? He was, he was known for this great superhero role, disappeared. Now he's this great actor trying to reclaim his past. And I thought he hit all the notes. He was uh, funny. He was brave. He was vulnerable. He's walking around in his underwear in Times Square. I thought Michael Keaton was really special. I would have gone for him for best actor. Redman. I thought Eddie Redman, that movie was so horribly overrated. It was so cloying and manipulative. I couldn't stand the theory of everything. When he won, I said, that's a joke. It made me think of what Robert Downey Jr. says in uh, Tropic Thunder. I was like, this is exactly the kind of movies that get rewarded for that. Corral definitely did something different. He was very creepy as John DuPont. I'm glad he got nominated. Cooper, as I mentioned, the second half in particular was really good when he's talking about the PTSD. And Cumberbatch, I mean, I did love him as Alan Turing. I think the Imitation Game is all this movie. I only saw it once, but I did love the movie. I'd like to see it again. I'd go with Keaton. Yeah, I, I have to agree with you. I would go with Keaton or my pick, which is Steve Carell and Foxcatcher, just because he did some. I think he did something different, too. He was creepy, um, and it was kind of nice to see him in a dramatic role like that. So I, I'll give it to Steve Carell. All right, Carell, definitely very good. All right, best actress. Julian Moore, Still Alice, Marion Cotillard for Two Days, One Night, Felicity Jones, The Theory of Everything, Roseman Pike, Gone Girl, and Reese Witherspoon in Wild. Yeah, Wild's a movie I haven't thought about in a while. Reese was really good in that movie. I, I don't, can't tell you anything but Two Days, One Night. I mean, we've talked to Marion Cotillard before. My wife predicted when she was going to win. I have no frame of reference to Two Days, One Night. What the hell is Two Days, One Night even about? 
I can't believe this movie only came out five years ago. I have no idea what I'm talking about. Anyways, um, the one I wanted to win was actually Rosamund Pike for Gone Girl because I read the book and then I watched the movie and I said, God, whoever plays this role is going to be tough to beat. And I thought she was amazing. I mean, just, it's just, I mean, cold and calculating and vindictive and so jealous and just, just own the movie. I thought Rosamund Pike was great in Gone Girl. I mean, the whole character, it's a great written character. If you haven't read the book, you should read the book before you see the movie. But I would have gone with Rosamund Pike personally. I hated Theory of Everything. I definitely would have not had Felicity Jones winning even nominated. I do like Reese and Wild. I don't even remember Two Days, One Night. I do remember Reese and Wild, but Rachel was drug act and stuff, Shell Strait. Julianne Moore, though, I was happy to see win. So I would, I would say I would have voted for Rosamund Pike, but I was very happy when Julianne Moore won. I mean, the scene where she pees her pants because she can't find the bathroom. You know, she's suffering from Alzheimer's. I mean, that scene is about as devastating as it comes. I mean, it was so emotional to watch. So I, w- I was happy when Julianne Moore won because I love her as an actress. I mean, I love her in Boogie Nights and, uh, you know, Magnolia. I mean, she's awesome. I was really happy she won, but I would have gone with Rosamund Pike. Yeah, I think uh, we're in agreement on this one. I would go with Rosamund Pike for Gone Girl 2 um, or Reese Witherspoon for Wild. Yeah, good call. It's definitely different for Reese. Best supporting actor. Easy one. We have J.K. Simmons, Whiplash, Robert Duvall, The Judge, Ethan Hawke, Boyhood, Edward Norton, Birdman, and Mark Ruffalo, Foxcatcher. All these guys are exceptional actors and gave great performances. I mean, The Judge is not great. Let's be honest. It's a pretty average movie with Downey Jr., but Duvall is always good, and he was the best part of the movie. Ethan Hawke is one of my favorite actors alive. I always want to see him win an Oscar. I wish he'd won for First Reformed. He wasn't even nominated for Best Actor, which is a travesty from a year ago. But I would have liked to have seen him win just for his career, and he was wonderful in Boyhood. Uh, just that scene where you know he's telling his kid about the Beatles and the fact he's this absentee father trying to make up for the past. Norton is so good because the character is so vain and self-absorbed. He's you know, mocking the way actors are on the stage. And Ruffalo, you know, Foxcatcher is a very cold, calculating movie. But Ruffalo has such heart in the movie. He's the brother that's very easy to root for. So I, I really thought he was special in that movie. I really don't have a quibble with any of these. Like I said, Duvall could just win any time, but I think the judge is the weakest of the nominees. But I would go with J.K. Simmons. Unforgettable in Whiplash. I mean, am I, am I rushing or dragging? Uh, just the way he's uh, so commanding and so dramatic and uh, enforcing all that he's saying. I mean, it's such a forceful, like a very muscular performance. I loved him in Oz. I've met him before a couple of times, you know, with the ESPN Celebrity Sopla. He's a great guy, big Tigers fan. Uh, we've had him on Cinephile a couple of times. I would have gone with Simmons, which was, I think was truly the right choice. Terrence Fletcher. I agree with you. J.K. Simmons. Supporting actress. Patricia Arquette, Boyhood. Laura Dern, Wild. Kira Knightley, The Imitation Game. Emma Stone, Birdman. And Meryl Streep, Into the Woods. I don't know if I ever ended up even seeing Into the Woods. I think it got bad reviews, but... The fact Meryl even got nominated for this is surprising to me. I know she gets nominated for everything, but I do not remember Into the Woods getting many good positive reviews or her work specifically. Emma Stone was good in Birdman. I'm glad she got her moment to shine though with La La Land. Laura Dern, I vaguely remember Wild. I wish she's going to win the Oscar this year. Um, I would go with Arquette because, yeah, as the mom, she really was um, kind of the emotional connection to the entire story. I, I thought she was beautiful in the movie and Boyhood as Olivia Evans. Although Kira Knightley, very, very good in the imitation game. But I would have gone with Patricia Arquette. I think they made the right choice. I'm going to go with Kara Knightley in The Imitation Game. It's tough between the two, but I think I'm leaning more t- towards Kara Knightley for this one. All right, no quibbles there. Best original screenplay. Birdman, Boyhood, Foxcatcher, The Grand Budapest Hotel, and Nightcrawler. This one was won by Birdman, which I thought was ridiculous. The movie won because of its directing, which is fine. It won for directing, won Best Picture, but I said, come on. Originals, what's the screenplay? I mean, it's just, it's just one of these movies which is just talking about art and art's sake and all the rest. You've seen it before. Boyhood, again, is a triumph for the director, not the script per se. So I wouldn't go with Linklater, although he's always very good with dialogue. Foxcatcher, to me, was just too cold and calculating. Grand Budapest Hotel, again, Wes has made better. I would have gone with Dan Gilroy. I thought Nightcrawler was exceptional. I mean, that was a movie which was combining elements of Taxi Driver and Network. Two great films that came out in 1976. I thought Jake Gyllenhaal was marvelous. Just so bug-eyed and uh, opportunistic. I thought Gilroy's script was excellent. I would have gone with Nightcrawler. I completely agree with you. And also, uh, Riz Ahmed, kind of right before he blew up, too. He's in that, too. So, Oh, that's right. I forgot that. Yeah. Good call, Joe. Yeah, that's right. Riz is in the movie. Yeah, he's really good. Uh, yeah, so I would go with Nightcrawler for sure. Lastly, best adapted screenplay. We have The Imitation Game, American Sniper, Inherent Vice. The Theory of Everything, and Whiplash. Hmm. Well, 
American Sniper, again, it's a good script. Inherent Vice, I mean, Paul Thomas Anderson is one of my favorite filmmakers. That's easily his worst film. I mean, that's crazy that he was nominated that year. That just as much as the Academy lost P.T. Anderson. Right. The guy's awesome. But that movie was a shambling mess. I remember afterwards watching and saying that movie should have been called Incoherent Truth because that's what that movie <laughs> felt like to me. Again, I don't know Thomas Pynchon's work. I, from my understanding is you probably got to be high to really understand it. And, and it's very, you know, rambling and sprawling. And so I guess he did his best to adapt it. But I did not like the movie as much as I adore his work. Theory of Everything sucks, even though Anthony McCartan is the guy who wrote The Two Popes. So I'm hoping he actually gets nominated this year. Whiplash, a pretty good script, man. Hmm. I'm going to go with, uh, yeah, I will go with Imitation Game because, again, it's based on the book. I haven't read the book, but I did like the elements of what it was telling and the historical essence of it, the fact I'd never known that story. You know, you're taking all this about how a machine helped and turned the war, and I mean, the character was gay, and there's lots of different elements to it, but I wouldn't have an issue with Whiplash either. Chazelle did a really good job with Whiplash. Yeah, I think uh, I'm going with Whiplash. It's a great script, and I'm not... A huge Damien Chazelle fan. I thought La La Land was extremely overrated, but I loved Whiplash. And it was a movie that after watching it, just I, I walked out smiling. So I'll, I'll give it to Whiplash. All right. Good stuff here on Total Recall. I like doing this segment. It's fun. It kind of just jogged the memory. I got to look up Morton Tilden. I'm telling you, that's my homework for next <laughs> time. Uh, have a wonderful new year, everybody. Thank you so much for supporting us here in 2019. I can't thank you enough. Please do subscribe, rate, and review. Follow us on Twitter. Tell us what you like, what you don't like. And next week, we'll be back with more reviews. Like I said, I got screeners all over the place. So I'll probably knock out uh, Harriet. Cynthia Erivo has been nominated for Best Actress by the Sags and the Golden Globes, playing Harriet Tubman. So that should be something on my list. I'll hopefully review that next week as well, as because I like Mark Ruffalo so much. I'll watch Dark Waters as well. So those two movies definitely will be reviewing next week. In addition to that, we'll do the best movies of the decade. I know it's probably a week later, but I wanted to get the best movies in first. We'll do the best movies of the decade. Uh, and of course, Mad Max will be figuring very prominently on that list. Until then, I'll see you at the movies. <laughs>